What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today I interview Lena Derhali and Amanda Mao. Lena has been on the podcast a bunch of times. Recently, we talked about the four students in Idaho that got brutally murdered. And Amanda Mao is a former defense attorney who this is her first appearance on the podcast. And we get her take on the affidavit, the suspect that's been apprehended in this case, um, and everything that has to do with the legal side of the process when it comes to this particular case. This one, we go into the details of the affidavit. We talk about timeline. We talk about how our profile from our last episode was spot on. And Lena makes a little bit of an adjustment and changes it to uh, a certain three words that I'm not gonna give out here in the intro. You're just gonna have to watch and see, but it's spot on. It's very interesting. And hopefully they've got the right guy and taken this person off the streets. So like this video, subscribe to the channel, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content. And enjoy this episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast with Lena Derhali and Amanda Mao. Peace out. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. I'm Corey, and today I have, once again, psychotherapist and author Lena Derhali and Amanda Mao, who is a former defensive, defensive or defense attorney? Defense. Defense attorney. But... You defend people. Is it was it public or was it like a big firm? What was that? Public. So I was a public defender for around eight years. Mm, okay, I have a couple of questions around that world also, but we we'll get into that later. But for the most part, this episode is going to be kind of piggybacking off of what Lena and I did a couple of weeks ago about the four students that were uh, murdered at the University of Idaho. Uh, as all of you know and listening, they have caught someone or suspect. They have them in custody. Um, they're going through the process. They have uh, brought him to Idaho from Pennsylvania where they picked him up. But what I'd like to do to start this off is kind of go through the timeline, if we can, of how we got here, starting back from the murders um, the, before Thanksgiving and then up into this point. Uh, Lena, if you want to start that off and kind of just give a quick synopsis of where we are. Okay, so you want to start from the beginning or since pick up from where we left off? I think let's pick up from the beginning, just briefly, like, hey, yes. you know, four students were murdered. In yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, uh, 911 gets a call around noon, I believe on November 13th, saying that you know, reports of an unconscious person. They get to the house and find um, four brutal murders, four of these, uh, three of the occupants of the house, and one visitor, the boyfriend, had been brutally stabbed in two separate floors of the house. And then there were two surviving roommates. And at the time, at least the speculation was that those two surviving roommates had been on a first floor of the house. So not, not the floor that the murders occurred on, which we'll find out later that that wasn't the full story and that they had maybe allegedly slept through the murders. We didn't know at the time that there were any witness accounts or testimony of any kind of thing. We assumed that they had slept through the murder for weeks. There's a lot of criticism of the Moscow, Idaho police where the murders occurred. They kept a lot of information close to the chest and didn't reveal very much. And so people were frustrated that they had no suspect, they had no weapon, they had no motive. And then, you know, shortly sometime in towards the end of November, they released to the public that they're looking for a white Hyundai Elantra roughly between the years of 2011 to 2013. And that's really all they say that, you know, this person might have information about the case. 
this car. We don't know exactly where the car had been spotted on video. And um, behind the scenes, we didn't know what was going on. But here we go, you know, after the holidays, all of a sudden, everybody who had been following the case finds out that there's been arrest and this person has been arrested in the state of Pennsylvania. And that this person was a PhD criminology student at Washington State University, which is actually just over the border of Idaho, you know, just miles away from Moscow, Idaho, where the crime took place. And, you know, kind of all blew up from there. And at this point, we have now seen the affidavit with the probable cause for arrest. And, you know, we'll let Amanda get into that more, but we know that it was a warrant for, a, it was a no-knock warrant, which is a bit harder to get, I understand. Um, you have to have more probable cause, I think, than what is, you know, normally expected so they can go and sort of bust in in the middle of the night. And so here we are, we're gonna sort of discuss the affidavit, what we know now versus what we knew back when Corey and I did our first episode before any of this came out. Right. So. You brought up the no-knock. Amanda, can you kind of distinguish what the difference is between the no-knock and just a normal warrant to to go arrest someone and why they would do or why they would want to do a no-knock instead of just, you know, picking them up on the street? So what I would say is you want to think about why you might need to do what would be called a no-knock, right, without letting someone know. So I'm going to guess without looking at the statutes that we're dealing with here that that warrant is going to have to be based upon some indication that someone's looking to flee or maybe trying to conceal something. So you're going to want to present to a judge and say, this is why we are seeking this type of warrant in order to arrest this individual. And we need this because, and sort of set that forth, let the, let the court know this needs to be this type of warrant because, and then they would detail why they would think that. Right. Okay. So when I read the affidavit, like I told you ladies before, this is the first time I ever read one. What is an affidavit? What is it for? What is the purpose of this? So an affidavit, it's going to be a supporting document. Typically, procedurally, if you're in criminal court, there's going to be an information, which are the actual charges. And those, that information is going to say, in this case, right, burglary, and then four counts of murder. And it's going to lay out, this is the statute that we are charging this under. And these are the minimal facts that it's so-and-so murdered so-and-so on this date and time. And then there's a supporting affidavit of probable cause. And that's usually drafted by law enforcement. And that supports the probable cause and supports the information. And that goes to a judge to look at and say, do we have probable cause? Are we going to find probable cause of the charges that they're alleging? Probable cause standard, really just more probable than not. So is it more probable than not that this person committed these crimes? So 51% is an easy way to sort of liken it to. Is it more probable than not? Is it 51% probable that this person may have committed these crimes? Right. And then if the court were to say, yes, we do find probable cause, then you get to the next step. So that affidavit is really law enforcement just letting the court know this is everything that we have that we think supports these charges. And so let me step back. I don't want to say exactly everything, but this is enough. This is enough of what we think we have right. to support the probable cause because it's not going to be everything at all. Right. And it doesn't need to be. And you don't want it to be. <laughs> just needs to be enough for them to yeah. go get someone. Right. Just enough to actually charge them. 
Okay. All right. And then um, let's get into the actual affidavit now that we know, you know, all the listeners and watchers know what an affidavit is. Cause I, I mean, myself, I've, I follow a lot of murders and stuff like that, but I don't read their affidavits and I don't like, I don't know that kind of stuff. And I thought it was very interesting reading it because it was detailed, but it wasn't like, I thought it was going to be like, okay, he went into, you know, it was like really, really, really laid out on, on what it was. And it kind of was in the beginning, but then like we spoke before we started, it kind of tailed off to the cell phone data. So um, if it's okay with you guys, let's kind of break that down from the top to the bottom if we can. So yeah, and I would just jump in, Corey, and briefly to say, like you're saying, you've never read an affidavit. Uh, an affidavit in this case, right, is a criminal probable cause affidavit. But you and I can write an affidavit uh, if we're sending something to court, right, saying, uh, swearing that we are who we are okay. to support something. So it's really a sworn statement is an affidavit that's reduced to writing. Okay, cool. And but so that case, you're testifying to. Yeah, but this different. is law enforcement submitting yeah. a probable cause affidavit that they Got are it. swearing to. Okay, so from... Well, let me ask another question before we start. How accurate was the assumptions or theories before the affidavit came out to versus what the affidavit said? Because I feel like, Lena, like what we were talking about, whether it was the profile or some of the stuff was pretty like spot on. Like, I don't know, like even the, the how they got the DNA, we talked in via text of like, yeah, he probably, you know, they're probably tracking him and this and that and sure as shit, like... That's what exactly what happened. So can we talk about that for a second, Lena? Like how accurate, you know, before yeah. and after? Well, I actually, there were a bunch of rumors that were really unsubstantiated and some of them were actually true, which I found really interesting. So one of the earlier rumors, there was a text message circulating and you can access the, these text messages on Reddit and I'm sure um, any other social media group discussing this case, but there was a text circulating around the University of Idaho that said one of the roommates had seen the suspect and he was wearing a mask. But in the original text, it said, you know, they heard some kind of rumbling or something like that and seen a guy in a mask, but, you know, they sort of just chalked it, they were a party house. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff about people being confused as to why maybe, and we can get into this later, why, the 911 wasn't called right away after a roommate had seen the intruder as well. They were kind of used to having random people in their house. And actually I was talking about the case with my mom last night and she reminded me that they have body cam footage of the cops going to this particular house for, you know, a noise complaint and the occupants weren't even in the house. So there was a party going on in the house with the occupants, not even there. So the police call Maddie, one of the occupants of the house to say, you know, we're at your house for a noise complaint. And, and so that, I think that was a really interesting and important part of this investigation of anybody could have gone into this house and cased the house inside the house at any point and the occupants wouldn't have even been there. And so it wasn't a strange thing necessarily to have random people in the house. We also don't know what kind of mask he was wearing that wasn't specified. So, you know, some people have said, we're still in a COVID era. Like it wouldn't be that weird for someone in a black KN95 or a surgical mask to be seen inside somewhere now. You know, it's it's a different world now. But was it a ski mask? Was it a balaclava mask? You know, things like that. So we don't know that. But that was an early rumor that did end up becoming true. And then another early rumor that I saw online was that they had found the sheath at the site of the crime. And I thought when I heard that rumor, there is no way. 
there's no way because they said they didn't have the weapon, which is true, but they had the sheath. I mean, that I think a lot of people are talking about the stupid mistakes this alleged suspect may have made by leaving the sheath behind. And so, yeah, that, that turned out to be true. But in the beginning, you know, everybody was like, no, right. there's no way. Yeah. So I think those were some of the, the rumors. But again, the profile that you and I discussed and, it, it, you know, the profile that a lot of other FBI profilers and criminologists have given have been fairly accurate. Um, we still need to know more. Uh, I know right now they're looking into the possible fact that this suspect could have committed mm. prior crimes or prior murders in Pennsylvania. So they're looking into unsolved murders in Pennsylvania now because he was in Pennsylvania up until, as we know, kind of early August 2022 when he moved to Washington to start his PhD program. So that's something we're going to be paying attention to is are they going to be able to find evidence if this was his first offense or not? And there's a lot of debate and speculation as to whether it was or not. But generally, the profile was, you know, again, a white guy in his 20s um, that, you know, psychopathic, impulsive, because, I mean, that was pretty obvious, right? That crime itself seemed full of risk and impulsivity. And so those are traits, you know, that we match up with for people with psychopathic personalities. And so I think, you know, a lot of that was lined up and there's still um, some stuff to be determined, but those right. are the big rumors that stuck out in my mind. Right. The other no. thing I wanted to quickly point out is we had said in our first podcast, we talked about the Elantra being the key to solving the investigation. And that was in fact, in the affidavit, that was the first piece of evidence that led them to the suspect, Brian Koberger, and how that happened. And this is in, you know, in the affidavit, um, after they had that description of the suspect, which uh, the roommate DM has described him as around 5'10". Um, she said not like muscular, but an athletic build and was wearing a mask and had bushy eyebrows. So they had this picture already of this guy. And then they have this white Elantra. And so there's a university cop at Washington State going through the registrations of white Elantras on the campus. And he finds this one registered to this Brian Koberger. It's also interesting because in Pennsylvania, they don't have front license plates. And so his didn't have a front, front license plate. We also know now a few days after the murders, he changed his registration from Pennsylvania to Washington state. So that's another thing they'll probably, um, we can go to Amanda, might probably bring up in court. And you know I'm sure the defense will have ways to poke holes in it. But the Elantra was what led them to Koberger. And once they had their eyes on this guy and they looked at his license and they saw, oh, he kind of fits Mm -hmm. this description of the roommate, then they were able to get his cell phone from a current, you know, a, a past a traffic violation. Right. And so from that cell phone, they were able to make these correlations between where the Elantra was and where the phone was pinging, even though his particular phone was turned off for about two hours around the time during the time of the murders. Right. So the Elantra was the key. Yeah, no, it was. And I want to go back in a little bit to the sheath because I, I texted you, Lena, about this Reddit thread that was going around before he even got caught. Um, and it mentions the it mentioned details that like I feel I don't know, like like we talked about before, like the reason why the police don't put out information is because they want the killer to say and do certain things that only the killer would do or would know, right? So it was very one of those, it was very much one of those moments where someone said something where it's like damn like that was really specific and why are they really harping on this sheath when that wasn't even a thought in anyone's head um but amanda if 
if we can kind of start from the top of the affidavit of like not the intro we don't we don't have to read it verbatim but kind of give me a quick synopsis of like that encounter of what they were talking about when the other roommates um who in the beginning we all thought like lena just said didn't hear anything didn't see anything nothing so can you kind of walk us through of what the affidavit goes over um and what the claims or what the the roommate saw so what i would just generally talk about as far as the roommate and what is being um re-encapsulated here in the affidavit is we're taking little statements from her right little statements i'm going to assume that any interviews that law enforcement had with the roommates are going to be audio video recorded i'm assuming there's going to be written statements involved as well and so we're just taking very little pieces and by we i mean the, the greater we this is law enforcement is taking a very little piece and putting that in the affidavit and that's and that's strategic too right i mean it's strategic to say these are some things that are going to lend towards what they saw and not have the whole picture so i don't so we're looking at very little pieces of what it is and also that's not while that's a larger part of the affidavit it's 19 pages yeah right it's not it's not as much as you might think and it's it's in part you could classify it as maybe an ident a witness identification but it's really just what she saw and what she is relaying in a very limited context right we don't know and i'm sure there are statements perhaps we will know at some point everything else surrounding that but we're really looking at a couple statements and a couple sentences in isolation right and we don't know specifically when that information was gained what may have been said before what may have been said after and there may be even more information that's helpful. So what is your opinion on like, okay, I mean, we can walk through what she saw in the affidavit and what she told the police, but do you think that they knew, like, I mean, obviously they interviewed the the roommates probably right away, but I had a lot of people on social media saying, because the first 911 call was a passed out student. But I think, Lena, we were talking about like the 911 call came from someone they thought someone was unconscious, which was one of the the deceased students. But a lot of people are saying, well, no, it's the someone passed out because they saw what they saw. So which is it? Yeah, well, actually, I did do some follow up on that. And Kaylee's uh, father, Steve Gonsalves, did give an interview to Newsweek or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but he had said, you know, he came out defending the roommates because there's been some criticism and how that their family stands by the roommates and don't blame them for anything. And he also said that they were traumatized and sort of corroborated this idea that they had seen at least some of the dead bodies and came out of the house. And, you know, maybe one was hyperventilating and couldn't make the call and that's why someone else made the call from the phone and the other one may have passed out so again this is not official on record court you know sworn in statements um and again i think they left it very vague on purpose and so like amanda said i think it's very bare bones what we're seeing i think the testimony we don't even know the testimony from the other roommate and I imagine that there was text messages between the two roommates, you know, so I think there's so much more that we don't know about 
the, you know, the roommates, what they saw, what they heard, their full testimony. And so I think, you know, we'll just have to wait uh, for that to come out. And then I also just to follow up briefly on that point, I mean, I would ask, what does it matter whether the 911 call was about someone passed out or not? Yeah. Right? Like, it, okay, it, it may be an inconsistency. We don't know if it actually right. is inconsistent or not. But where does that get you one way or another? Or what kind of analysis do you make then? Right? Yeah. What does it really matter? It's not was he there or was he not? It's, right. it's not one of these larger questions. Yeah, it's definitely a question because like, I think people were like trying to blame the roommates for either not yeah. doing something or, you know, or involved in it or some, some crazy thing. Right. Like right. it could maybe go to credibility of right. that one person who's saying it. Right. Right. But the more I information. I also think people want to understand this whole, yep. like to some people, it's really weird. Yeah. You know, um, they want to understand, well, didn't they go check on, you know, so I think it's, there's a, also a portion of people that aren't trying to blame them, but are just trying to figure out like that's a good point. what really happened. And again, that's where I would say, let's wait and see. Like, we just know this, these few sentences from the affidavit, let's wait and see. And, you know, the roommate is probably going to have a lot more explanation for why things happened the way they did. You know, she could have like somebody had speculated and, you know, in uh, the FBI that she could have been totally frozen in fear for hours, you know, like we don't, the flight, the freeze response and trauma, if that was the case, you know, could, she could have been frozen for a very long time. We don't know. And so that's what I'm saying is that we, we need more information before we can even think about that. But uh, also to Amanda's point at the, yeah, really, what is it relevant at the end of the day when right. what's really relevant here is did this guy do this? What evidence did they have? And what was his motive? Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's relevant as we talk about it and you speculate what someone may have been feeling at the time. And sure. what, right. But you're looking at it in two different ways as just sort of a curiosity and wanting to know more versus the legal component, the, the actual court process. Yeah. Right. So in the affidavit, it talks about from how I read it, and I'm trying to visualize it in my head that the roommate saw him coming towards her. And he walked past her or did she shut the door and lock it? it? I saw that she locked the door behind her. But like, can you kind of give me a visual of what what the affidavit says in that in that moment from what the testimony from her, her said? I'm going to have to look at the affidavit and yeah. tell you. I have it pulled up, too. But like, and the, I know, Corey, that it doesn't say if she made eye contact with him or if he saw her, it says she heard crying. Mm-hmm. And so she opened, she heard a, a male voice. She didn't identify the male voice as something along the lines of it's okay. I'm going to help you. Right. Yep. You're exactly right. Lena. Right. And then, uh, thank you. And uh, then she, you know, she saw him walking towards her. So right. that's what we know. And then she saw him, you know, go towards the area where you would exit through the sliding glass doors, but it doesn't specifically say that she saw him exit either. I okay. see Amanda's looking at the affidavit, but yep. I think that, that that is sort of the word for word description. Is that right, Amanda? Yep. So she heard crying. This is after um, two paragraphs down, I think, or a paragraph mm-hmm. and a half down from what you said with the, it's okay, I'm going to help you quote, is she heard crying, saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth. Enno is walking towards her. She describes him as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, athletically built with bushy eyebrows. Walks past her as she stood in a, quote, frozen shock phase. Then walked toward the back sliding door. 
and she locked herself in a room. Right. She didn't, she didn't recognize, it says she didn't recognize them either. Um, and, and again, right. not in this affidavit, right? Not in right. what we're seeing here. We just have that. Right. That is crazy. That is terrifying for like, you know, oh my God, dude. Ugh. So that's, they talk about the sheath in the beginning. They talk about the encounter that the roommate had. But I'd say the majority of this is cell phone pinging and tracking and all that stuff, which in my eyes tells me that early on, they kind of knew who they were looking at. Um, now, in the on the the criminal side of things, Amanda, like, does does uh, does police do they? OK, let's zone in on this guy. We got the white Elantra. We have him at this campus in Washington State. He kind of fits the description of what the roommate gave us. Do we just put all of our resources into this one person? Or do we say, hey, we got a thousand leads coming in a day? Do we also go and, that route? And so, right, those would be great questions to ask of law enforcement. Did you right. just zero in on this person individually? And right. did you exclude all others? And I guess things that just sort of stood out to me is sort of this widening of the affidavit a little bit, right? So we have a statement in there from law enforcement talking about we're looking for this year's and they give a 2011 to maybe 2014 Hyundai Elantra. And then later it gets expanded, right? To 2016. And we have him driving a 2015 Elantra, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So we they, they go a little bit further out there. And then just as looking at the cell phone data, and what they're finding and what they're putting in the affidavit is from my mind and a defense perspective is just looking at it quickly and saying, wait a minute, they keep using statements of his phone not being on, his phone not pinging to show him at the murder scene. That's indicative of him being there, <laughs> right? And if, if it was pinging there, it would be the same thing. If we had information that showed his phone was there at the scene around that time, we would also be hearing from law enforcement. Right. That shows that he was there. Right. So you're and that's fine i mean that may very well be the case and that may be consistent with their training etc but we're also looking at this of saying we don't have the information with him being there exactly and this is why that would show that he could have been there right so it's, it's a it's a different way to look at it different perspective i think because like he turned his phone off because he knew like i guess that it would it would ping or whatever but they were also using like the route that they kept showing in the map right. of like this is the likely route that he would go and he was headed in the direction of their house and back to Pullman and all that stuff. So they're just kind of putting like footage together from different areas and then the pings that they do have together to kind of orchestrate this scenario of, of trying to put him, they're trying to put him at the scene. Yeah, and I think, right? right, I'm going to assume a lot of the language in there, a guess, but I'm going to make this guess a lot of the language in the affidavit is also being used or could have been used to gain additional information from cell phone providers and the other places they went mm -hmm. to for information that wasn't public, right? That weren't live streaming or that they couldn't access. So they're saying this is indicative of someone committing a crime and wanting to conceal their location. So that's why we okay. want this information from you, AT&T, and from right. you. That's a good point. Um, so my question to you as a defense attorney, a former defense attorney, is when you see this affidavit and he's your client, are you excited about this because it's not crazy detailed? Or are you like, oh, shit, like they got this guy pinned to the location? So I wouldn't be excited about any affidavit. Okay. <laughs> 
charging a client. Um, but I understand the question. Okay. No. So, I mean, you get this affidavit and really it's not whether you feel or for myself, I can only speak as to how I would look at it. Right. It wouldn't be that um, you're like, excellent. There's no way that they're going <laughs> to do anything here or, oh, shoot. But really, you're looking through it for what what kind of information are you looking to get? Mm after the fact. So this is really like, we're just starting this whole process. And now you're going to have the defense looking to go through a discovery process, which is gaining the information and asking for the information from law enforcement that they have in addition. And what supports this probable cause affidavit, it's like those witness interviews, yeah. recordings of them, any copies of search warrants that they used or the applications to that they use for subpoenas to get the information from cell phone providers right. and other locations. So you're really just looking to see, this is the affidavit of probable cause and it can give you some clues about where to look next, other things that you're gonna look at. But this affidavit of probable cause, whether it is actually used at a trial or not, who knows? I mean, it's really, right, it's really only gonna be talking about what that specific law enforcement officer said. So if you were to use it at a trial, you're really only gonna be using it when questioning that law enforcement officer. Hmm. You can a question. I'm oh, sorry. No, I was going to say a question for you. At what point would the defense get the discovery from the prosecution? And do are they they're entitled to everything? I imagine that the prosecution has. So can you? You're going to be entitled to everything. Um, and there are timelines that govern this. There are timelines in whatever jurisdiction you're in that say you're entitled to everything. Here you have, you have to request it most of the time. Um, at least when I was practicing, what would happen is you would receive a discovery list that would say, these are all the things we have. And you could request copies of those specifically, but you could also make your own requests saying, I would like X, Y, and Z, and this is why. And if you're not getting it as a defense attorney, there's a process you can go through requesting it again, asking a court to follow through and order someone to provide it and to provide it timely in a timely manner, right? So that you have it and you can act on it and you can actually review it. Yeah. And, and another thing with um, this affidavit is just looking at it briefly, too, is the DNA component. So, Corey, you talked a lot about um, the DNA, and we talked about it being them finding some DNA on the sheath on this button. Mm -hmm. But we don't have in this affidavit anything that they compare that with an actual sample from the defendant. Right. We have trash taken that was maybe moved to a different location. And we're looking at the dad, that it could be the dad of a potential suspect. So I'm going to assume what happened is based upon all of this, there was actually a request to take DNA or to receive a sample from him and that there is actually a sample from him being compared to what's going on with the, the DNA on the sheath. And then you're going to have lab reports based upon that. You're going to want to look at chain of custody. And so chain of custody is just another way to think, how can we ensure that this DNA is accurate? So how can, if you find this sheath at, at the crime scene, what happened to it before? Was it handled in a manner that preserves the integrity of any material right. on it? And then who touched it next? What lab did we take it to? What samples did we run it against? And Amanda, I understand that this was called touch DNA that they found. Um, and I, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, that touch DNA is a, a little bit less reliable than other DNA. Do you know anything about that? And so I would just sort of, I mean, there were going to be experts that probably the state and the defense would use to talk about how you can rely on it and how you may not. But in this case, that's really going to be relevant just when comparing it to him. 
think of touch DNA just simply as if you're going to swab me and get DNA from within my mouth and then compare that to something that's going to be a lot more reliable than if I touch something, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be a more complete sample. It doesn't mean they can't use it. And, but you would also have someone who would talk about why that may or may not be problematic, why you should rely on it or why you should not. And if you have a hearing or if you have a trial based on that, then your judge or your jury would decide whether they think it's reliable or not. And what other people make are saying is that with a crime scene this grisly, there's likely other DNA on the scene. We just don't right. know about it yet. And they also, we don't know what happened when they took his car and what they found in the car. So if they find blood of the victims in the car, you know, there's other things that have happened since the affidavit that we don't have the results to. So. I imagine that they'll be using all of that. So Amanda, when, so if he's in Pennsylvania and they pick him up in PA and he's allowing himself to go to Idaho, is he defended? Well, two questions here. Does he have, a, is he paying for an attorney right now or does he, was he given one? So my understanding is he has a public defender in Idaho. And I believe there was also the public defender appointed in Pennsylvania. I don't know whether he's paying for them or not, because you could still, typically what an individual needs to do is if you're accused of a crime, you can apply for a public defender. And you would say, these are my circumstances. And the court would need to appoint that public defender to say, yes, you qualify. Okay. And the logic, right, is so that someone who doesn't make a ton of money can just say, I want a public defender sure, sure. And, and utilize those same resources. But in this case, um, we do know that he is appointed a public defender in Idaho. We do know that there was a public defender representing him for the extradition process in Pennsylvania. So he may have a, an amount that the court is saying he would have to pay as sort of a payment towards that public defender or not. Also, his financial circumstances are going to be a lot different right now than they may have been three weeks ago, right? Because he's now incarcerated. So he's not right. making any money. That's crazy. Okay, so um, more on the affidavit about the pinging and all that stuff. In, in your eyes, Amanda, what do you, is that like, because you said this, this can't, not that it can't be used, but like you would only use an affidavit, like you just said, if they're talking or they're, um, not interviewing, but they're they have the the cop on the stand that that wrote most of the stuff, right? Like, so is this not something that you would use in court per se? So I think it will be used in court or it can be used in court. I guess what I would say is it looks like all of that cell phone information is something that law enforcement is using to get their case to the next step. Right. They're using it to place him there okay, yeah, yeah. to say he's here and based upon this, then we want a warrant. We want his DNA. Sure. We're taking our next steps here. So I, will it be important? I guess it would depend on the further discovery and then whether they're even contesting, right? I mean, he could, it, his defense team may say, yes, we were there. <laughs> yes, this was where I was, but uh, okay. I was doing something different entirely. Right. Yeah. So Who knows? It's so early on. So it may just be, can you contest it? Yes, I think we're really early on. And if you're contesting it, it may just be for purposes of obtaining his DNA warrants or trying to challenge a warrant itself for how they got that cell phone information. Right. When, so early, since this is so early on, when you when you get this and you just said that you can, you know, ask for information uh, from from the, the other side, the prosecution, 
like let's say they have a ton of DNA, they have a ton of information. Would you be able to get that right away, or does this, is there a process with that where you have to wait? So I think it's going to depend, which will be my standard answer on everything. Okay. <laughs> However, and and I say that too because I'm not practicing in Idaho. I don't sure, know yeah, yeah. how they're going to do it. I'm sure there are plenty of people that do. That being said, I mean, if there is DNA that they're using, they being the state, and I'm talking about the prosecutors, mm -hmm. right? So if there's DNA that they're testing as a defense, you can request to utilize that same sample and have your own experts test it as well. Damn. It doesn't, you can run your own lab analysis and you can test it that way um, if, if you want to. Right. You can certainly ask to have that happen or not. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? If it just shows more that this is, entirely who it is and it's very reliable <laughs> then that that can be not necessarily helpful but it can also yeah. be helpful just in talking with your client right and right. saying hey we, we went these steps this is what we've done sure. this is a, a route we've explored and there's nothing helpful there do we know anything about his family and like on their take on this or what they're i know they made a statement that they're like they're behind him or whatever but do we know anything about about them i had just seen that same statement it seemed fairly sympathetic it seemed appropriate given the circumstances but nothing really that i've heard above and beyond that Corey. right um, 48 hours had a special last night i actually was able to watch it this morning before we jumped on um they did say something else oh, they spoke through their uh their attorney in Pennsylvania, the one who did the extradition process. And, you know, they said they used words like he's responsible, he's you know, devoted to his family. So it sounds like, I'm not sure when that, I think it may have even been before the affidavit came out. I don't think we know how they've reacted since or what they think. But again, I think it's going to be super hard for them to process this. You know, this was somebody that lived in the house with them, you know, and it's one of the most heinous crimes in the media in, in a long time, I think. And so I don't know how, if, you know, if the, even if the evidence is so, so, you know, blatant that there's nobody else that could have done this, we, they could still be in denial potentially for a long time. I mean, it's going to be incredibly, it's going to be a huge grieving process again, if innocent till proven guilty if this does in fact he either pleads guilty or he's found convicted in court right yeah it reminds me of the like the brian laundry thing and the get like how the the family was so involved but they weren't but then they kind of like assisted because i also read i don't know if me and you lena were talking about it i thought his dad flew out and then drove back to pennsylvania with him in the car but then yeah, he I did he did and then okay. they have it on body cam he was stopped in indiana with his that. dad twice yeah for, you know, tailgating and driving too close to another car kind of thing. And so they've released that body cam footage. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, you could say that, say Brian is saying, I guess I've heard they say he doesn't like to fly, right? Let's just say that that's the case. And he says, dad, can you come over and help me drive the car back? And, you know, there's also tons of speculation. What was he planning on doing with the car once it was in Pennsylvania, you know, because he knows they're looking for this Elantra. And so another thing that's been out in CNN, again, unverified because there's a gag order now, but that law enforcement FBI that was trailing him for four days while he was in Pennsylvania before the arrest is that they saw him obsessively cleaning out 
the car with surgical gloves. And so, you know, there, I think there'll just be a lot of, if that goes to court, you'll have all these witnesses there Mm -hmm. who said they saw him in court, but, you know, I mean, I think it would be his dad would have no clue, you know, just thinking like, yeah, I'm going to do this nice road trip with my son and get quality time with him. Right. Yeah. That, well, that's it's because one thing you said to me last time we spoke, that's that like m- tells me that there's more to the him and the Elantra was because you said like all someone had to do because they knew everyone knew the whole country knew that they were looking for this Elantra. If you had nothing to do with it and you had an Elantra, hey, I'm here. You know what I mean? But instead you go across the country. Uh, I don't know. It just didn't. That was like, OK, this is clear to me that he has some sort of he's trying to get away from the area and, and the situation yeah. um because if i had if if i saw news like oh man i got this black grand cherokee hey i i was i did not kill these four people please look at my car <laughs> like do all the surveillance you want but it wasn't yeah. me like there wasn't that it wasn't forthcoming. right so, so yeah, like you so, had something to hide yeah well i was saying that say you were you that was your elantra and you were in the neighborhood at that time and you're a potential witness and you don't want to be implicated in the crime but not only that this particular suspect was like you know 10 miles away from the crime or so and he was in a criminology phd program and a ta for you know undergrad classes where this was a case that happened so close they were discussing it in classes so there's no way he didn't know about the case or he wasn't, I mean, right. I think he had even said that I, I, from the 48 hours special, you know, the, the attorney he had in Pennsylvania said, well, he didn't know why were, they were there when they busted in, but he said he did know about the case. And so again, this is information through the public defender, not through his, the person of interest mouth exactly, but you know, those are just some things that you think about as like, you knew they were looking for an Elantra if, you know, I just imagine that that's how they would examine him is why didn't you, you could have been a key witness. You could have provided information. Right. He applied as an internship to the Pullman police in Washington state, like while he was there and he wanted to do cloud investigation mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that for, for public safety purposes. And so, you know, it's, if, if you're somebody who's studying, you know, criminal procedure and criminology and all of those things, I'm sure that you would be the first person to say, Hey, that's my car. I may have some information. Right. Yeah. And, and I'll go back to the, um, in a second about the, his, like him in that kind of world, like what that means. Like, is he trying to outsmart? Does he think he's smarter and blah, blah, blah. So I'll talk about that in a second, but I think I, I want to know, Amanda, what are the key pullaways, takeaways? I don't want to say pullaway takeaways from, um, the affidavit, like in your eyes as a public, as a former defense attorney, what are the key takeaways? So key takeaways from the affidavit, yeah, you like, have a lot of work, right? There's a lot that has gone into this, a lot above and beyond what people were potentially even speculating was happening. <laughs> and we right. know that we have an individual who went to cross state lines. So we have the FBI involved probably for for that reason as well, in addition to just crime scene processing, but really trying to figure out what's going on and how do we deal with this if someone is going to different states. Things that stood out is the DNA wasn't, there is DNA, yes, mm-hmm. but right, when you, when you hear about it, you're hearing there's DNA, that means he's there. Yeah. But I think it's a little bit 
it's a little bit more nuanced than that when you actually read through the affidavit. Um, the other thing that stood out to me is I do just go back to his phone not being on and not placing him there was indicative of him being there. That stood out to me on some level. I, I'm also looking at it and trying to say, well, we also have an individual who's placing someone that matches his description at the scene. And maybe that's also part of why we have this that specific statement taken from the roommate, right? To say someone that matches this description is there. Right. And there at the time, because we don't have that fully from the cell phone data and everything there. Right. So th those are the things that, that really stood out to me. I found the cell phone information fairly boring when reading it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I skimmed it and went back to it again and went back. But it's also sort of just indicative of this case as a whole and all the speculation around it on social media and how it's everywhere is we're getting information from live streaming right at different food trucks and things that are going on and utilizing a lot of information there. I'm assuming law enforcement went to those places and talked to the individuals that were there. There's a whole different slew of information that I'm gonna guess you can get from that as well. So there's a lot, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg is really what stood out to me. And you would look at the other information from this that you would wanna be looking at and everything else they have, quite frankly. I'm going to go back yeah. to you, Corey, and your statement that if there's ever a crime where they're looking for someone in a dark Jeep and you have a dark Jeep, you're going to go to law enforcement and talk to them. Please talk to me before you do that. Don't do that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's this. Um, and so and I get it. I'm looking at this like him not going there. This is a very, very scrutinized, very public case. People are terrified. Right. Four right. people were murdered. And no one knows, there's no suspect. Like if you have a white Hyundai Elantra, come on, <laughs> like you have some idea. Right. But by the same token, um, you, that's two sides of, the, of a coin, right? Yeah. That you're not gonna go and talk and say, it wasn't me. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Maybe, maybe that criminology background and maybe that knowledge of criminal procedure says, well, if I go and talk to law enforcement, then maybe things are gonna be taken out of context. That's true. And maybe yeah. I will be pinned as a suspect um, I, I'm not saying that is the analysis here that we can know that for sure, but. Well, that's a good point because you think about like how big and how like, you know, time sensitive this case is like everybody wants the police to find someone and it could be a classic, like, well, you know, if, if you did come forward, it could be like, well, this guy has what Elantra, this kind of adds up. Let's just, let's just pin it on this guy and then, you know, figure it out later. Not that, like you said, not that they did that, but that's. Totally plausible. I didn't even think about that. See, I will, I will reach out to you if hopefully that never happens to me. But <laughs> um, right. I mean, I just I go back to um, right, like if you're living in your home and law enforcement shows up and they want to come inside and look for something. No, <laughs> I don't have to prove to you that everything I'm doing is okay. Right, right. If you have a warrant and you would like to come in, then of course. But yes, I don't need to just let you in and tell you everything about my life if I don't need to. It's much better advice. Um, so what is what would be your you know, you're his defense attorney in Idaho. What are you thinking right now? So, I mean, we do know that they've, that his defense attorney and the defense team has been to the scene even before he, I think, made it back to Idaho. I think Lena had um, sent me something that was showing that as well. So you, this is a hugely public case. You're trying to get your defense team together and just get all the information that you possibly can, mm -hmm. anything and everything. 
and you're going to the scene, you're taking your own notes, you're having your own investigators look into everything, you're making very broad discovery requests to the prosecution, you're just waiting to get everything and start combing through it, quite frankly. And then you're going to be having some conversations with your client. And I don't, I don't know whether that's going to be with an investigative team, whether it's going to be the defense attorney or not, but you're going to be starting a relationship with your client very early, very soon, so that you can go through the case together and sort of see what makes sense. And I, and I do want to say, I think how I approach that and, and me in answering that question is it's, it's really just to kind of establish and deal with the case and where it goes from here. Cause we don't know, right? We don't know if this case goes to trial. We don't know if there's a plea deal. And again, we don't know if maybe there was someone else involved. We don't, who knows? We can make a lot of speculation and, and inform speculation, right? Look at everything and say, well, this is why I think that, but we don't for sure know how this will play out. So if you're a defense attorney and you're dealing with this high profile case, this serious crime, you're going to be incredibly thorough. And I have no indication that the um, defense team is not doing that whatsoever, but they're going to be thorough. They're going to be going through everything they possibly can and having their resources there and available. Right. So as a defense attorney, so I always think like, man, like you have to represent some, some people who, you know, obviously innocent until proven guilty, but goddamn, like, is that hard? To, to defend certain people like you know even if they are guilty of those crimes or like there's so much evidence and you have to go in there and fight for them like can you kind of like talk about that for a second because i feel like that's something that when we see it on tv or when we see people like wow you're representing this guy you know what i mean like that classic you know view on it can you kind of like shed some light on that of course no so i think the main thing is this is just my own personal approach and how i handle this so I think there are certainly people that might say, I'm a defense attorney, there are certain crimes that I will or will not handle. Hmm. And that may be, they may just might not be the best person for that, right? It might not be, <laughs> who knows? But for myself, I really don't, when I did this work, it really came down to meeting with your client, understanding what the prosecutors have against that person and explaining the process too. Hmm. So you're part of this process if this process plays out how it's supposed to, then there's going to be a very vigilant defense that's going to look at all possible information, all possibilities, and then best inform the client as to how they make decisions. Because a defense attorney doesn't say, we're going to go to trial 100% or we're not going to go to trial. That is up to the client. You work for the client, they make those decisions, and you can provide them all the information that you can to say, when you're making this decision, this is what would be important to consider. So let's say this plays out and everything is stacked against the defendant. Then you're, as the defense attorney, bringing all that information to them to say, hey, this is what we would expect at trial. This is everything they have. This is what we don't have something to explain. This is a potential um, hole in the case, or this is a weakness something that we could do with, but where does that get us or where does it? Right. And, and then kind of how does that play out at a trial or not? So it's really more of, I mean, you're looking, the defense attorneys involved here, I'm sure are professionals. This is not, they're looking at this of just going through the case. What can they do and how can they best inform their client? Cause that's your duty, right? As a defense attorney, your duty is to the client and informing them and allowing them to make decisions. I used to have this sort of 
frank discussion first and foremost once we got into things with a client of yes it's relevant perhaps whether you are guilty or not but it's really what can the state prove Hmm. and that's what and that's what happens at a trial can they prove the case and that that applies whether you're innocent or guilty right if you're innocent and it looks (laughs) like you did this and everything is pointing to you that is just as much a problem right and that needs to be grappled with so it's really what can this what have what have you been charged with what can the state prove and how does that look like a likely outcome for an individual? Right. So it's more and of a in guide. this case, yeah. Yeah. And then just sort of work from there. And if and then explore any other avenues that your client may may offer to you. Say, well, no, I was here at this time. Okay, well, let's let's talk to witnesses. Let's find that out. And then you could say, well, actually, no. Yeah. <laughs> talk to your witnesses say you weren't there. That's not helpful. Right. right. We're not going to pursue that. Or excellent information. Yeah, this is this is great to pursue and look at. But I mean, who knows? And in this case, we're likely looking at potential for death penalty. Idaho has that available to them. And so right now, I'm assuming everything is going to be more based upon a trial and not necessarily whether it has to or doesn't have to go to a trial. But I also think a lot of defense attorneys may approach something as I'm preparing this, whether it's going to trial or not. Okay, so you're you're setting it up that way. Yeah, because who is it going to? Who's it going to harm if we're not preparing that way? Right. It's yeah. only going to harm your client. Sure. If so if it doesn't minute, go to trial, they could just be like, oh, well, I'm pleading guilty. And then we can save all that nonsense. Yeah. And the so death he penalty could, is off the, case, the table. Yep. He could plead guilty. So prosecution may offer a plea deal. So how you would get to a resolution at this point, right? There would either be a trial with a verdict, guilty or not guilty, or guilty on one count, not guilty on another. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And then... The other option would be there would be a resolution offered by the prosecution. So they could say, if you plead guilty to X, Y, and Z, then we will either take that. And then what is the sentence component? What is What have they negotiated from there? So maybe that looks like taking death penalty off the table. Maybe it looks like a stipulated sentence. Or maybe we say we argue the sentence, let the court decide. Who knows? Or the defendant could say, I just want to plead guilty and argue for sentencing okay Uh, as a as a defense attorney i would really really discourage any client from doing that yeah i mean it's probably a good idea (laughs) just because you don't know right like you can say you did this and that's fine but we don't know what potentials are for sentencing we don't know what you're opening yourself up to we want to research all those things before and give you an idea so i think right now we're looking at is it a trial or is it not a trial i don't know that we're going to know for a while. I do think of just like that affidavit. It's 19 pages long. We know there's DNA. We know there's live streaming, tons of witnesses. We've got someone across different states. We've got traffic stops leading up to it. We've got DNA from trash outside of his family's house. All this cell phone information, the crime scene itself, right? And just how we've heard about how gruesome this is and everything involved in processing that. It's so early on. And that's depending upon different things this could take years oh wow damn and i was saying the authority said when they arrested him that this is just the beginning so just yeah. to just to corroborate what we were saying like they're like it's just starting now damn this process that's yeah and if it's if it's a death let, let's say there is a death penalty conviction right and that is the sentencing there are appeals involved with that so even 
even as you get further on, or there could be appeals, I should say. Right. So, yeah, I mean, Corey and I have talked about Scott Peterson a bunch of times on this podcast and how that he has a death penalty and he's still on death row and there's multiple appeals. I think he just had one recently, right, Corey? I think he got taken off, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know, but yeah. I saw it was in the news. So yeah, I mean, like that even at that point, Amanda, do they even get the death penalty right. because of that process, right? Like sometimes they're just on death row forever, right? Yeah, that's what all, I know this is kind of a, the death penalty, like what stipulates, because I've, I've seen people get the death penalty and within a couple of years, they're dead, <laughs> you know, but then like a Scott Peterson, it's like, okay, it's 2004, this happened, you know, we're going almost on 20 years at this point. So like, how how does that work out? Like, I know, can, can you appeal it forever? Or is it like, okay, guys, like, we know you did this, you know, yeah, you got 20 years in the can so far. You, you're, you know, you're a better person, I guess. But like, what stipulates that versus like this guy did a terrible thing? Let's let's execute this person. And so I don't do. I have not done death penalty work. So, okay. <laughs> but procedurally, what I can say is, um, you're going to be looking to stay. You're going to be trying to offer the court reasons for an appeal of that sentence. Right. Reasons might be there's new evidence there's, we're, we're finding out X, Y, and Z, you should overturn this. There could also just be a challenge to the death penalty in and of itself. That it's unconstitutional, like mm. unusually, unusual cruel and punishment. Unusual <laughs> cruel and punishment. And cruel, yeah. Yeah, so like I, there can be a couple of different bases. It could be specific to the case and saying, hey, this information is out there. That's why this should be looked at again. Or it could be a broader constitutional challenge where- right that may be working its way through the courts but i mean appeals can be time consuming and lengthy and who knows what and again right that's we're looking at this so far down the line and we're really just evaluating a probable cause affidavit so this is going to be it it, uh, could be potentially fair fairly long road now i just looked up the scott peterson thing this is actually pretty interesting the recent news was that he requested a new trial Mm -hmm. And so he was denied a new trial, but he's not on death row anymore. He said right. he was on death row for 15 years. I just haven't been keeping up with it that much. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, the death penalty sentence was overturned. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there you have it. Just yeah. again, to just show the whole process that he can even request a new trial. Yeah. If you- yeah, you, you new trial, you could say there was a juror that was prejudiced against um, something about the case. There's many different reasons that you could right. yeah so in this case it. the defense attorneys pushed for a new trial because they claimed a juror in the case lied during jury selection so they could yep. use that as grounds to ask for a new trial yeah especially with like a such a publicized case like the scott peterson and like this case that i feel like i don't know from what it looks like the cops really crossed their t's and dotted their eyes in this situation because they did not want it to have they don't want any loose ends is what it it's what it looks like for me and i have zero background in any of this but like like the scott peterson case like the jurors that they're talking about they're in that documentary literally saying oh we were gonna we were gonna he was guilty from the moment we saw him like they're like afterwards they are saying this so it's kind of like you know i don't know that's going to happen in this case but as a defense attorney like that's something that you probably have to let your you know you know, your, your, uh, oh my gosh, your, and I say inmate client, client, yeah, your client, no, like, like, you know, hey, listen, like, 
these people are going to hate you because the media and social media and Lena, Lena, I've talked about this before are just crucifying this person. Right. So like, how do you handle that? No. So, I mean, there's ways hopefully that you can address that and that's going to be through juror questioning. You can't stop a juror from lying, right? But yeah. a juror could, needs to take an oath. And so we brought up Scott Peterson issues with jurors on that case. Another recent one is the Maxwell trial where there was a juror who lied about um, their prior I believe that they had been involved in a sex assault or they were a victim of and they ended up on the jury too so that was cause for reevaluation or at least a motion right. to assess that so procedurally there are things will you ever know who knows um yeah. those are those are great unknowns uh, there's so many unknowns right so a trial is essentially an unknown and also when we look at everything and we're now analyzing and the public is analyzing things, a trial is very, very different than everything that we're seeing and given. A trial is really gonna be much more isolated. It's gonna start from the prosecution's case. They're gonna introduce the evidence they want. The defense can challenge things. You can seek to have components of things not brought into the case. You may not call all the witnesses. There's gonna be defense witnesses. You just don't know, it's gonna be much tighter, I guess, for lack of a better word, than everything that we're seeing here. But it's a very public case. It, there's so much out there. How do you get jurors that aren't going to have been prejudiced by what they're seeing, right? right? And that's what you would be looking to do for both the prosecution and the defense. Because for sure. the prosecution, it's not helpful. Maybe in the short term, you can have a prejudiced jury who is going to convict. But if that becomes an issue later down the line, then your whole verdict is subject to question. That's true. So yeah. you want the court, the court wants this to be as as clean as possible as really following your procedure right. would there be a request to change venue of the trial and and that base would be like move that trial this happened in this county in this state everyone here knows about it everyone in the community is so invested so the defense could say we want to move this to a different location a different county within the state i don't know if that helps Right, just because of the nature of all the publicity about this, it's not. That's yeah, they did that in Scott Peterson. They moved it from where it happened because of all the public scrutiny and everything yep. like that. So they had to get jurors from not in the county where they lived because everyone hated the guy. Yep. So and then, it, and like Scott Peterson, what year was that? Two thousand four. So different world now, right? Way different. So much more social media. So much more different. Different platforms. Different attention to yeah, it. Definitely. Lena, so I don't know if you would achieve that same or potentially achieve that same result by moving it. Yeah, it'd probably be even harder because it's so much larger, like you said. Um, Lena, can we talk about the psyche of this of this killer? Because when you read the affidavit and you hear that there was a dog in the house that was barking at certain points of the time, that there was other roommates, whether he knew that they were there or not, that one actually saw him, you know, when we talked, it was like, hey, this person, if this might, we're guessing this might be his first murder, but he's probably, he's maybe killed animals before. I'm thinking like, okay, did he, why did he let the dog live? And why didn't he just kill the other people? I mean, those are questions that nobody actually has the answers <laughs> to, know. right? But, okay, like Amanda said, but let's just say, let's just say he is the guy and I'm not even saying he is. Like I, I, let's let the evidence play out. Do I, am I, do I think he, probably yes. Okay. You know, but let's just innocent until proven guilty. That said, let's say that this individual is the guy. Yeah. We don't know motive and we don't know target. 
right? Well, we do know like what we can make informed speculation on, as Amanda said, I like that informed speculation is that we know that this, this was from the affidavit, the sheath was found next to Maddie's body on the third floor and Maddie and Kaylee were found on the bed in Maddie's room. And then we do know that the testimony from the witness, Dee, was when she saw the person leaving um, Zana's room, where Zana and Ethan were on the second floor, was towards the end of the crime based on, again, the footage of the Elantra parking at the house and leaving the house, right? Mm -hmm. So that can be inferred from that, that likely the first victims were on the third floor and the other victims were on the second floor after that. And the murder weapon, the sheath was taken off the knife. Somehow he forgot it, slipped out of a pocket. We don't know, right? Um, we don't know that, we don't even know, you know, again, this is brought up in a lot of the social media world. We don't know if he saw the surviving roommate who saw him. So people have pointed out that she's in a dark room. She had been sleeping. So when she's opening that door, she's open. she probably doesn't have the light on. We don't know again. But there's also a, um, a neon light that they had in their house that was, I think, I believe on the same side of the wall as her room. And so if he was walking towards her and her room was dark, he could have been blinded by that neon light and not seen her. He could have been so intent on getting out of there because he didn't want to get caught. You know, we just don't know again. So this is all total speculation. Right. We don't know if he knew who was in what room. We don't know to what extent he had cased the house. We do know in the affidavit, it said they've placed him there about 12 different times before the murders. And so, but we don't know again, like I said earlier on that we have evidence that there was a party at the house where the occupants of the house were not even there. So that says to me, he could have easily walked into a house party. He could have gone through their rooms. Like we don't even know, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is all going to come out, but you know, what we can look at, I think is potential motives. And what I think investigators are going to be looking at are two major potential motives. Of course, there could be more, but one would be something personal, right? like a personal target that he had some beef or some anger, you know, some people might speculate rejection. We know in the media and that friends on the record have come out to say, you know, there was this period of time where he was bullied for being overweight. And then he did this dramatic transformation and dropped at least a hundred pounds and came back. And the friends that said after that time that there was a significant change in his personality and behavior and that he had become more aggressive that he would put this one friend in headlocks that, you know, he would kind of talk down to him and insult him to the point where this particular friend ended the friendship because it was just too toxic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're going to have these, these type of people coming out and saying all of this stuff about the suspect. We also have other people coming out, you know, saying different things. But one thing we do know is that there was a problem with heroin, that there was a behavior change after losing the weight and after using the drugs. And so, I don't know, maybe this will play a part into the defense if it goes into trial. So we, we know all of that information. Um, so that could be a potential motive, right? That there's this kind of look at it like sort of a mass shooter profile, that there's this person who's been aggrieved by society or by women in this particular case. You know, people are looking at the pretty sorority girls, handsome athletic boyfriend in a fraternity of a sorority girl, that there could be some kind of personal hatred directed at people like that who had may have bullied him at some point. It could be about female rejection. Um, I did see in the 48 hours special, 
one of his peers in the PhD criminology program made a comment that I, I thought was pretty significant. And again, this comment in any other context would be like, okay, whatever. But just again, looking at this particular profile and this particular person that he had bragged about being able to go into a bar or a club and get any woman he wanted. So if you want to hear about that, go check out the 48 hours special. But um, so I said, you know, there's that piece of narcissism right. right there. And there's this interest in women. And so who knows how he took rejection. I also did want to put, you know, out there that people have asked well, where might he have made, made a connection with these women, right? Could he have gone to a party at their house? Would that have been weird that a 28 year old PhD student had gone to a party at their house? I said, you know, he could have just slipped in and if he was stalking them, but could have met them at the restaurant that two of the girls worked at. But the fact that he says he goes to bars and clubs and we have people on the record from the brewery in Pennsylvania that they had him in their computer notes that's flagged him as kind of a creeper. Yep. You know, that uh, one of the women that he had flirted with brushed him off and he called her a bitch. You know, things like that. Um, that he would ask questions like, when are your shifts? Where do you live? Like things that women, you know, generally would probably get a creepy vibe of someone, you know, yeah. just firing those type of really personal questions at them. Right. So we know he's going to breweries alone in Pennsylvania. Who's to say he's not doing this, going to bars in Moscow, Idaho, Pullman, Washington, you know, looking at women and maybe seeing, he said that he went to grocery stores in Idaho. Maybe he saw them at a grocery store and followed them home. Like that's happened before in other cases. So what we're, what they're really going to try to figure out is, did he know them? Mm. Or did he just have an interaction with them at the grocery store? Like, could you pass me that plastic right. bag over there for my broccoli? You know? Right. So I think that's what they're going to try to establish is, um, was he just watching them and never had an interaction with them and something about them appealed to him as why they should be his victim? I think they're going to look at, were some of these victims collateral? Like Ethan, he didn't live there. He was right. just there that night. Kaylee had moved out about 10 days prior, she was getting ready to graduate in December, but she had posted on social media that she was back in that town. So, you know, you would look at that as like, well, was he targeting her? Cause that was his chance. Right. Or was she just unlucky by being there that weekend? So, you know, they're going to look at all of those things, but I think ultimately when we're looking at the profile, what I've changed since we last spoke, and this is like the last thing I'll say, cause I've been talking a while, but <laughs> is that I think we're looking at a dark triad personality, if this is the guy. A dark triad is a mix of psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Say that fast, <laughs> Machiavellianism, nope. right? And um, Machiavellianism is somebody who's really manipulative and deceives other people to achieve their goals and really likes power and control. And, you know, somebody, if this is, if he is a dark triad and he's sitting in court, then I would say that he is enjoying feeling control and power over others, especially harboring information that he knows people want to know and that he enjoys the fact that he kind of has this power now over other people. And so that's something I'm kind of interested about is seeing these, these three traits of the dark triad actually coincide with this particular individual, because this is a particularly senseless and heinous crime. Right. No, it's, it's that, I mean, 
that makes a lot of sense because like we talked about before his narcissist side is like if it is him uh it's kind of like he's either loving this or he you know can't wait to tell everybody why he did this you know what i mean like he's either gonna make us not us but like everybody else like suffer for not knowing why he did this or didn't do this and then you know the other side of it is you know what he wants to tell everybody because he wants that that glory and that kind of like recognition but didn't didn't he didn't they ping in the affidavit it says they pinged him being at the house before like 12 separate occasions no yeah and again i think you know we'll have to see well exactly where was he pinged and mm. um they also have him pinged or maybe even on video because there were actually ring cameras on king street their their street um that he returned to the crime scene at 9 a.m around 9 a.m right. after the murder so he went back and we don't know, you know, sometimes we know these psychopaths like to return to the crime scene. So could he be looking if he dropped the sheath and he was like, oh, shit, did he? You know, there's so many things, right. again, that we don't know. But the narcissism piece here is interesting because I think it answers the question for people as to why he was so stupid. Because people are like, wait, this is a Ph.D. criminology student. Like, and I know that studying the, uh, the sociology of, the, you know, and the criminal mind is why do they do things and right. that. but. It also, he was also interested in law enforcement. You know, he had, he had applied for that internship to the police department and he was interested in the military. He had said in his high school yearbook that he wanted to be an army ranger. But the narcissism piece, again, and we've talked about Chris Watts before, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, why, why was Chris Watts so stupid to dump his daughter's body at his place of work? You know what I mean? And like, right, there, was yeah. just, there was just no way. Like, even lied about how he killed them and the autopsy showed different results. Right. And Chris Watts apparently had a, a high IQ and a photographic memory and was like a smart, intellectually a smart dude. But the thing about the narcissism is that they think they're smarter than all of us. Right. And their inflated sense of self is so big and their grandiosity is so much that they think they can do it where all others haven't, you know? And, and so it's that kind of narcissistic confidence where the stupid mistakes come in because right. they're human like all of us. Right. Yeah. That's, man, guys, this is so fucking crazy that we're <laughs> even having this conversation. But, okay, so, Amanda, what happens next? I know his, his, less, his next, um, like, appearance is at the end of January, like Lena said earlier. I think it's actually Lena. Let me know. January twelfth. Right up the twelfth. Oh yeah, shit! This week. Okay, great. And it sounds like that is a preliminary hearing. Um, what I would assume would normally happen is it would be that he would be arraigned on the charge and either enter a plea or not enter a plea. And okay. at least what Lena had let me know is um, this one might not look like he needs to enter a plea at that. Oh, he doesn't have to at that point. So, yeah. but again, I don't, I don't know specifically right. for Idaho. Yeah, um, that's what they said that he does not have to enter a plea at this hearing on the twelfth. So, what's the point of this plea? What's the point of this hearing? So, I would think that it's just a preliminary hearing. Get things moving in court. You might be setting some timelines and some dead uh, okay. deadlines of what's to come as well, and see where things are. Another, just I had a thought while Lena was talking, because um, we spoke a little bit about what could potentially happen, right? Whether there's a trial, whether there's a sentencing yeah. or some sort of plea deal. is A lot of the things that Lena's um, saying, a lot of potential diagnoses, the traits that go along with these, if you're dealing with a sentencing for committing murder, four counts of murder, and those are some of the things that are being brought up or could be brought up by a prosecutor, 
those are not necessarily great things that a court's going to want to hear and want to take into consideration when sentencing someone too, because it, it goes to Lena, right? Like the potential to rehabilitate someone, mm. right? If you're, if you're possessing these traits, yeah. then can you be rehabilitated by some type of sentence? Who knows? Right. One other quick thing, Corey, I thought of a way to explain the affidavit maybe a little bit better. Okay. <laughs> so, right. Like your question of, what holes do you see or would you poke from the affidavit? How I would classify the affidavit itself is what law enforcement is giving, what law enforcement is saying. You might not see a lot of holes in the affidavit because they're not going to include things that are problematic or potential issues for them. They're going to be portraying what they can in the light most favorable to them. And that's the light that the court looks at it in the light most favorable to the state. Right. So they're not poking holes. You're not looking at doing that initially with the probable cause affidavit at this stage, but you're looking at it from a defense perspective of what else is there out there that I can look into that is not in this affidavit. Right. And why is it not? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah. So you're not, you know, particularly, you know, the the cops want this to look as good as possible so they can get what they need out of the. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Okay. Lena, you're going to say something. I was just thinking that, you know, in prior trials, I've seen that they use aggravating circumstances, right, Amanda? So if the crime was especially heinous or malicious in nature, um, that, that that may also impact the sentence. That was more of a question, but. Yes. Would they do that in this case, do you think? Because, I mean, it is it was brutal. I would think so. And I'm going to assume that's also going to be a component of whether death is sought or not, but when and if you get there. Right, right. And in conclusion, I would just say like about him, Mm -hmm. like we're looking at, is this a budding serial killer who wants to kill just to kill who fat, who was fascinated with people like Ted Bundy and all of those things and just wanted to kill and would have continued to kill. Or again, are we looking at somebody who had a real personal hatred? And I don't think I mentioned that before that I think that those are the two angles that are going to sort of get the most um, interest from investigators. Right. No, I agree. I, th- I saw uh, BTK's daughter was interviewed and she was saying like, I would be because he because he he taught he learned from was it to sales or uh, the University of Pennsylvania? Yeah, Catherine Ramsland, who's a renowned forensic psychologist, and he studied under her and she had a relationship like cordial relationship with BTK and she's written, yes. you know, over 60 something books and things yeah. like that. But actually, BTK has gone on the record now and said, that he did not correspond with Brian. Wow, that's yes, crazy. because BTK's daughter has been doing interviews, and she's like, I think he may have corresponded with my dad because my dad knows Catherine Rams anyway. But he came out and he's like, and again, who knows? Are we going to take BTK's yeah. <laughs> testimony as try? Yeah, but he BTK stated on the record that he did not correspond. With Brian well, Hover. but that's that's an interesting element though to the narcissist side. If I did this and I am in this field and I, you know, was taught from someone who knows Dennis Rader, like the back of their hand to me, that's like, Oh, wow. BTK is coming out and saying, talking about me. Like, that's like, I feel like uh, a serial killer's dream. Oh yeah. It's a narcissist dream. Narcissist serial killer, dark triad dream. Yeah. BTK is talking about me. Like, yeah. That's crazy. I did not know that. That's, that's terrifying. Um, one last thing, and I'll let you guys get out of here. The the this is like an, I don't know if it's an internet sleuth type thing, but I saw a Reddit 
and it's about the sheath. So there was this person who made an uh, AI, because I don't know if you've noticed on social media, like people like turning themselves into like artificial intelligence and stuff like that, like these cartoon looking things. Anyway, it's a viral thing that's going around. So this person had a profile and I forget the name of it, but it literally looked like an AI version of the the headshot of you see him with the, the bulletproof vest when they picked him up in Pennsylvania. And this guy, this, this profile kept going around to different um, uh, threads and just giving information or just saying certain things like rebuttaling what people were saying. Like one, one particular comment was like, oh, you know, they were talking about the murder weapon. Like they don't have the murder or they, they might have the murder weapon or whatever. And this person replied, well, it's more than likely that there was just a sheath left behind with some DNA, like very, very specific shit. And I'm just like, dude. This, this, do you think that is something that this person would do? This is probably more of a question for Lena just because of the psychology of it. But do you think that's something that he would do, especially when you just said that he's, he visited potentially the crime scene afterwards? Do you think that this person would go into the comment section of places and start inserting himself? I think it's, it's possible for sure. I mean, anything is possible. I think that law enforcement will know for a fact. I know that there there was one account on Reddit that people were speculating could have been him. That mm-hmm. person deactivated their account by themselves after he had been arrested. So just to put that one okay. to bed. Um, but also, you know, people have said, hey, maybe it's FBI as that account. You know what I mean? Or maybe it's somebody, yeah. try, you know, who knows? It could be anybody. But I think those particular accounts are actually now in the New York Post and TMZ have picked it up, like those suspected accounts. Mm-hmm. And so law enforcement will for sure know Who they if are. that is connected to him. There's also been a bunch of fake Instagram accounts created by him. You know, so we don't know exactly what's real and what's not, but I'm sure that those will be things that they're, they're looking into now. Like they're on it. They're on right. it. Do we know who who got the, the, the worst of the four? Because I know that was a lot of talk. I think it's just too much speculation now to, to confirm. Okay. okay. Yeah, I don't think we know any. And there's been so many rumors about it. So and, many. And Kaylee's dad has hinted at it. But again, you know, I don't think we can real we shouldn't say anything about no. that until that's actual confirmed legit right. information. Okay. So final thoughts, Amanda, as far as like, you know, what do you think is going to happen as far as conclusion? And yes, it will be speculation because all of this is up in the air right now. But from your experience, what do you think is going to happen? Let's say this person is the suspect is the person that did this. We're going to find out a whole lot more. Right. And the information is going to keep coming. It's going to be my guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I could give a percentage. I could <laughs> guess, but I mean, we don't know, but we're going to find out a whole lot more and we're going to be able to find out a whole lot more just because of the nature of our lives right now. And but, right. but also we need to be astute and really look at the information that we're getting and who is it coming from and how is it being presented? Is it coming through the court? Is it something that law enforcement is putting out there or is it some speculation of an individual who may know someone who heard something or not because anything's possible, but we'll see. Right. Lena, what about you? I am with this one. I don't know. You know, I'm like 50, 50 between a plea deal and a trial at this point. Again, I think the victim's families are going to be consulted about, and I know Kaylee's parents are on the record that they, they want the death penalty. Um, 
So I don't know this guy, again, he's kind of confounding a bit, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. he's, he, he think he would do this. So far he has done the right things by not, you know, by being the role model prisoner, by waiving the, the extradition, you know, all of these things he's doing. Um, so I don't know. I feel like with him, it's a, the, the, and I think this is what's so fascinating for a lot of people is like anything can happen. Everything we find out seems to be more shocking than the next. And again, it's such a shocking crime. You know, they say that some of these prolific serial killers from back when, if they had done it today, they would be caught. And so this is a really ballsy person yeah. to do this. Yeah. So that because of that unpredictability, and because of, again, I think these dark triad traits at play, that it is just, you know, there's a lot of impulsivity, there's a lot of unpredictability, and like it's anybody's guess. So I don't, I don't have predictions as to where this is going to go, but I agree with Amanda. There's so much we don't know, and there's so much more that's going to come out. Right. Well, the, there's so much more that we don't know because the police department and the FBI are just holding all of this, or it just hasn't been discovered yet. Probably a bit of both. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thank you ladies for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, Lena, where can people find you and in your books and all that stuff? Yeah. Check out my books on Amazon. I wrote the book about um, the psychology of Chris Watts called my daddy is a hero. And my other book is not true crime, but about social media and narcissism called the Facebook narcissist. Right. And Amanda, where can people find you on social media? Are you on social media? I'm trying not to be because <laughs> I go down some dark holes. Same. And some of them are this, right? Same. Some of them are Same. this as well. That's so funny. I know. I feel you on that for sure. Um, but I no- apologize for dragging Amanda into this dark <laughs> hole. <laughs> no, and then and then I'll go to her right when I need to have more information. I'm like no. Lena. <laughs> Lena's the plug. More. Lena is the plug for sure. She's like the the go-to. I, it's funny because me and her talked before and I was like, I was like trying to step away from like talking a lot about like serious because I was like obsessed. I mean, every week I was talking to like FBI profilers and, you know, people who've caught in, you know, uh, Gary Ridgeway and all, like, all these people. And then I was like, let me just chill. And then she's like, hey, listen, <laughs> this is crazy. We should talk about this. And I was like, suck right back in. So, no. That's so funny, but, but I, I really appreciate both of you guys coming on. Um, and I'll put all your, your, if I can find your handles, I mean, I'll put all the information below, but that's another episode for the e 4 podcast and we'll see you guys next time.